Today's episode of Your Stories is sponsored by Backblaze Online Backup. It's a simple way to back up all your movies, photos, music, videos, and all of the data just for $5 a month. It's simple, and you can access all your data online from wherever you are. Try it absolutely free by going to backblaze.com slash cpc. That's B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E dot com slash cpc. If you need me to spell cpc, man, you're in trouble. Your Stories is a wonderful opportunity to share all the highs and lows of being a nerd. You know that hobby you have that you don't talk to anyone about? It's a secret you don't like to share because it might make you feel weird. Maybe you're into something different. Uh, comic books, fantasy football, push-ups. Your Stories, to me, has been this really kind and welcoming space where people just have the guts to be really honest and they share their voices and their stories with everyone there, no questions asked. Uh, I've heard stories about all those things. Uh, maybe not not a lot of push-ups. I maybe haven't heard a lot of stories about push-ups. The Nerdalogs is group therapy meets Toastmasters. I know there's always a place where my odd thoughts and unusual habits will be welcomed and championed in a warm, supportive environment by other nerds just like me. And what's fun is you'll see people in the audience one month, and then all of a sudden they uh, go up and tell their story. So your story becomes their story, and their story is your story, and then it's our story, and then it's a podcast, so it's everybody's story, and then you've shared it, and gosh, that's great, huh? And even if you don't think you're a nerd, you probably are. It's easily the most Midwestern thing I've ever been a part of. Hey everybody, I'm Eric Garneau and this is the Nerdalogs Presents Your Stories podcast with part two of our show featuring the theme Castaway, which marks our third annual team up with International Tom Hanks Day. This show features pieces from local performers and writers Jesus Monroy, Will Hindmarch, Andrew Bentley, and myself, plus music from me, Dwight Hessler, and special guest Sasha Rorett. We recorded at the lovely American Writers Museum, which I highly recommend you all become fans of because that place is awesome. You can find them linked through our social media pages or visit AmericanWritersMuseum.org for more info. Now, I hope you all got to enjoy International Tom Hanks Day, C2E2, or both this past weekend. Uh, We had a couple really incredible shows on the Cards Against Humanity comedy stage, one of which was a recording of this podcast that hopefully we'll be able to share next week, depending on when we get the audio files. Uh, You may have noticed we've been pretty busy doing shows lately, so we might be taking the rest of April off from live stuff. There will still be a New York Stories pod every Monday, of course, but you might be hearing things a little different than usual for a bit. Uh, But do not worry, it will still be cool and fun and nerdy, and we'll be back soon with the live shows. And as always, feel free to follow us on Facebook and to rate and review this show on your podcast app of choice, as it really helps us. It's crazy to me that that seven years in, we're doing shows as good as the wrestling one we recorded at Challengers, this one, the one we did at C2E2 that's coming soon. This is some of, I think, the best stuff we've ever released, and if you're here listening well... We really appreciate you, and I can tell you that there's a lot more great stuff coming. So with that said, let's flash back to last Saturday and the second floor of 180 North Michigan Avenue for another round of stories and songs about being cast away. I 
I got a little bit of detail on the museum. So I don't know if you've noticed on the monitors, they're celebrating their first birthday in May. They just opened uh, less than a year ago. And it turns out that, um, yeah, that's, that's pretty great that their founder is actually an Irish gentleman, which is perfect because this next song is from an Irish band. And we were, uh, I, again, I was feeling weird about not playing all American artists, but if an Irish guy founded this place, then we can say this is a tribute to him. <laughs> so this is a song from the band Thin Lizzy. Uh, their, their lead singer, Phil Lynott, uh, was kicked out of a band called Skid Row, not the popular one, but uh, an Irish band called Skid Row from the 60s. Uh, and then he went on to found one of the, like, I mean, just a groundbreaking band in so many ways. I think they're the first band with three guitars, one of the first, like, black-fronted bands, one of the first major Celtic bands to break through. Pretty amazing. Um, they did not write this song, but they made it popular, and then James Hetfield got his paws on it about 20 years later, and that's the version I hear in my head, but... Anyway, it's called Whiskey in the Jar. One, two, one, two, three.
White and Sasha, everybody. So, uh, so now I'm going to tell a story. That also doesn't happen a lot. But like I said, we wanted to put our best foot forward with Kevin, and also you get me. So, <laughs> hi. Um, all right. So I'm really glad that we're here in the American Writers Museum next to the Kerouac Scroll. That's going to become really important to what I'm talking about. So this is this is absolutely perfect. So. The theme Castaway puts me in the headspace of one of the most American of story tropes, the road narrative. I mean, sure, stories about people using infrastructure to travel from one place to another have probably existed since art has existed, but there seems to be something uniquely and iconically American in stories like Jack Kerouac's On the Road, or Mark Twain's The Adventures of Huckleberry Finn, or like probably 20 of the 25 books on that favorite list that you can see right there. And whatever it is that's in those stories, it really speaks to me. Uh, taking a quick glance at some of my favorite media, so much of it falls into this category, right? So my number one prose book of all time is Chuck Klosterman's Killing Yourself to Live, which is an essay travelogue in which the author, Chuck, visits the sites of a bunch of dead rock stars and figures out a little bit about uh, what it means to be alive in the process. There's a chapter where he compares his four biggest exes to the four members of KISS that deeply speaks to me. Um, <laughs> on the fiction side, I always love John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath. The way that Tom Joad assembles a party of travelers piece by piece to go west and find a better life in California honestly always reminded me of a Final Fantasy game, except that the final boss is fair treatment for the working class, uh, who they don't quite <laughs> defeat. Uh, he'll keep coming back again and again, so it's kind of a bummer. Um, thinking about music, if you know me at all, you know how much I love Bruce Springsteen. Can't believe we're not playing any of his songs tonight, but no one throws the boss out of anything. Um, he is the king of songs you can use to blow out your car speakers. So it's sometimes said that you can only really know an album is good when you can play it while speeding down the highway. And it's on our rural interstate system while going about 15 or 20 miles over the speed limit that Springsteen really shows himself to be the sound of America for me. But uh, you will pardon me for a moment, please. I'd like to really talk about uh, road narratives in my favorite medium, the comic book, which is awesome. They actually have a comics display here. That's very forward thinking. Thank you for that. Uh, I'm a big comics guy, and while I was looking at my shelf to prep this piece, it struck me just how many iconic series take place on the road. Uh, you've got Brian K. Vaughn's post-apocalyptic Why the Last Man and his teen superhero drama Runaways, which stopped being good as soon as the titular Runaways found a place to settle down and stop being castaways. Um, you've got the American Gothic arc of Alan Moore's Swamp Thing, where the title character is led around America, seemingly at random, to witness B-movie horrors like werewolves and haunted houses linked with true American terror like institutionalized sexism and endless gun violence. It's really wonderful. Written in 1986. Um, you've got my favorite currently published series... Bear with me. A book called More Than Meets the Eye. Well, you know what it's about now. Which I love so much, I almost wrote a whole piece about it until I realized no one wants to hear me talk for five minutes about a group of Transformers looking for their long-lost home that combines the drama of Battlestar Galactica with the humor of community and has taught me so much about issues like class and social hierarchy and friendship, and which was just announced as ending in September, and I'm very sad about it. But you don't want to hear that story, so we'll just assume the list goes on. And I was trying to think about why in particular stories like this resonate with me, and I think the answer to that also comes from comics. Uh, it comes from Neil Gaiman's iconic Sandman series. Now, granted, Neil is a Brit, but American literary tradition at least partially descends from British literary tradition, so I'm going to say that this is fair game. 
So in volume four of Sandman, the story focuses on Lucifer, the actual devil, who gets tired of shepherding hell, and he decides that he's done with it. And so he gives the key to hell, because there's a literal key in this universe, to the book's protagonist, Morpheus the Dream Lord, and he just walks away from hell. And in doing so, he delivers a quote that's always stuck with me. He goes, perhaps this is the ultimate freedom, the freedom to leave. I think about that a lot. Uh, I'm a pretty solidly middle-class person, and I like to travel. Uh, I take at least one major week-long road trip every year, plus a bunch of smaller, less ambitious jaunts to visit friends or other interesting places. Looking at my calendar, I'll be in Madison, Wisconsin in May. I'll be in New York City in June to see Springsteen on Broadway. I'm fucking stoked about that. I'll be in Washington, D.C. in July. I'll be in Texas in August. That's a lot of travel. And I recognize the privilege in having generous enough employment to both support my having that time off and the money to like actually go do those things. So I think a lot about the intersection of, of freedom and geographic mobility and class. And it seems to me that there's an inescapable privilege in the ability to travel, the ability to leave, as Lucifer did. And one of my big personal philosophies, the whole point of this show, is that it's so important for everyone to feel empowered to write their own narrative. And I'm sure the museum feels that too. Uh, but when you're writing a road narrative, you almost definitely have some degree of economic freedom to do that. And increasingly, the less fortunate among us don't have that. Uh, Tom Joad hit the road because he needed a better life for his family. Megatron did it to find the Knights of Cybertron, the only true progenitors of justice for his race. We do it mostly because we want to. And I can't help but think that there's at least part of the answer, that's at least part of the answer for why road narratives seem so uniquely American, right? We romanticize this notion of the road as a canvas for us to work out our personal issues, often blithely ignoring that that's a pretty bougie and self-centered goal that so many of our peers just can't do. And as someone who literally, I crowdfunded a tour for this show last summer, you all paid to send me on the road. I especially am aware of this. Thank you all so much for that experience, by the way. Um, but, you know, on the other hand, literature is an escape, and art lets us work out things in our imagination that we can't do in reality. So it makes sense that a country so steeped in inequality would romanticize figures like Tom Joad, who, despite you know his lack of privilege, has access to that freedom, that freedom to pack up and go wherever he wants and reinvent himself in a new prosperous life. The earnestness of people who aspire to do that collides with the blithe ignorance of the reality that so many people can't access that possibility. And that feels like such an American phenomenon. It, it feels in a way like the foundation of the American narrative, right? This contrast between that's the Horatio Alger story of I can be whatever I want, but also reality, you know? So it's with a little bit of guilt and a lot of earnestness that I will go on loving my road narratives blasting Springsteen as I tear down Interstate 55 on another probably pointless but incredibly fun weekend trip, and hoping that Megatron finds his home before his book is canceled in September. <laughs> so, thanks, guys. It's really good. It's really good. More than meets the eye is really good. Anyway, coming next to the stage, this is really exciting. So this dude, we did a show at... Um, Kevin and I both went to the University of Illinois. Kevin was the artist in residence there a couple years ago. We did a, a show to cap off his residence week. And this gentleman was like your liaison at the school, right? And now he's up here in Chicago, part of the improv scene at the playground and, and shit. You can see him around. Uh, great dude. Please welcome to the stage, Mr. Jesus Monroy. <laughs> Hey everyone, let's get buckled in.
I struggled a lot writing for this, mostly because I don't like to rush the writing process. I think it's just so, it's just so synthetic and so forced when you have, when you're trying to like produce a piece of content within like a certain budget of time. I think it's not, I think it doesn't serve you as an artist and it doesn't serve your art form. Um, and I was, so I was writing on the Amtrak and I was listening to Jenna Worthman, who is a columnist in the New York Times who talks about uh, how media and technology relates to human beings. And she was talking about how right now, as a society, there's just so much anxiety. You know, as a country, we have so much anxiety. And for her, she also has like, I have developed and bottled so much anxiety in myself. And that recently, my shift, I have shifted my thought of how I am going to tackle that. And where she goes is she says, I used to think, and I think everyone thinks, things are going to get better. But I think eventually now in, in my age, things aren't going to get better. And for her, that was both a sad thing, but also maybe something liberating. Because when you think about it, like when you think of any human story, it's sad. It's sad. We all have, we're all going to have a sad ending, which means whatever happens before then matters and it's important and you should take care of yourself during that time. And for her, she's like, that really changed the way I thought about my anxiety. You know, we don't, we don't treat anxiety. It doesn't go away. It's not something where like a cold or after some medicine you can take it away. You manage it. Um, and it really got me thinking of first failures. Um, and how I've been primed, and how I think a lot of people in my generation have been primed to hustle to the point of burnout. Where if you're not doing A through Z, you're in some way failing. And there's something just so innately wrong with that. And so innately not human. Um, I come from an immigrant family, uh, a Mexican-American. Um, I've lived here for 22 years. I'm in a mixed status home. and. You know, been fortunate enough for to go th to get a high education. I my degree finally, um, but the road to get there was just so tolling. And I think, and for a while, I thought it was the only one. But once you start talking to other people who are like you, you realize like you're not alone um, because you're thinking, I have to get a degree. I have to be able to be successful to prove to not only American society that you are good enough to be here, even though this is land that has been stolen from us, but also prove to your family back home that, hey, I was able to do what I needed to do here in order to be successful. And, you know, putting that on a child as far as an American dream is so, like, soul-crushing to me. It's just like, it's just like, Why? And I'm thankful, I'm thankful for the worth ethic that I got from that, from what I got from my parents. You know, I, I think I have an amazing set of values that have carried me to this point, but it burned me out. It burned me out. And I knew the signs that I was burning out, and it wasn't like metal, like, met, like metaphorical. Like it wasn't like, oh, that's a sign. It was like very much people like screaming to my face, like, you need to calm down. Are you going to die? Like, girl, you need to slow down, like, slow your roll. And I was like, no, like, I'm God, like, I can keep going. 
Because when you're 20, you that's how you think. You have, like, this delusional sense of self-confidence and, like, drive that you're just like, I'm going to keep going and, like, shoot for the moon. And then the moon shoots you, and you're just kind of like... <gasps> um, and so... Because I, I was hustling three jobs, working at more than 40 hours to support myself, you know, doing the doing the thing, getting the gig... And eventually, like, I burned out, and I had to come back home without my degree. And that just shattered, and that just shattered me, because I was like, I failed in the biggest sense of the word failure. And I, and I, it was, there was just so much guilt when I came home. I was like, I, and I apologized to parents, like, I'm so sorry, I, I didn't do it. I, I, I continued, I finished my degree in the winter here at Harold Washington uh, with, permission from a university to do it um but i was but i was so wrapped up in this idea of like hey i'm gonna do the four-year thing i'm gonna go be the first person in my family to get a degree but it didn't happen that way um and i think we're not primed or trained to deal with failure because i didn't know what to do that failure was so immobilizing and i think for a lot of people you don't know what to do after that first failure you kind of want to give up um, and so I talked to my therapist, and and one day I just I'm like, did like did I fail? You know, when is this gonna get better? Because you know I've been putting this work to get myself better for more than ten years, and I'm still sad, and I'm still anxious, and like, and I'm here. I hate my fucking job. <laughs> like, my acceptance to grad school was sent by mistake. Yeah, no, that was fun. Um, <laughs> And like I found out that I and and I'm, and I going through addiction um, through malpractice at the U of I, and I feel like I'm just like I I feel so small right now, and I feel like I have to do everything under the sun to to get out of that like like tomorrow, like if change happens tomorrow, and what I was thinking and what I was thinking back to what Jenna Wortham said my therapist was getting at. She was saying, you know, anxiety is kind of like an unwanted house guest where they're there for such a long fucking time and you cannot wait for them to leave, but it doesn't seem that anything you can do is going to get them to leave. So you kind of have to manage the party around you to make yourself feel better and just deal with the fact that this person's not going to leave for a while or ever leave. This They might just have to move in. Like, you might have to get a futon. Um, and, I, and I was... And then when I when they told me that I was just kind of like one, yeah, that's true. But two, that's kind of a shitty analogy, not as just as a person who wanted to hear something good, but like as a scholar of like behavioral health. I was like, no, like that's not what. Um, but it kind of got me thinking. I'm like, yes, it is going to be a struggle for the entire time of my life. But also, on the other hand, you are. It's kind of, it's relaxing. You know, it's it's relaxing to know that you don't have to get better tomorrow. You can take a break. You deserve that break, I think. You can take the break and just, like, sit for a minute and eat your food and, like, really enjoy life. And I think a lot of people aren't doing that anymore. I think a lot of us are getting lost in the hustle and not realizing that if you keep going, you're going to burn out, like I did. Um, and, of course, like... I was pissed and everything, but it made me think, like, I had to check my dream because I lost my dream, I think. You know, the American dream, 
I don't think is a practical thing anymore. At least for me. Um, I think for me, my dream right now is to like go to the movies, hang out with friends, adopt a cat, which I did, and like fuck off somewhere. And like for me, like that's success. Because it is ungodly to think that I have to do everything under the sun to surpass my parents. And I think that's like a very bourgeoisie kind of message sent to like the proletariat that, you know, they're kind of just abusing our labor and we are kind of desensitized to that sometimes. We're just like, hey, we need to take a break. Like, what are we doing? Um, And it wasn't until I had a wonderful improv teacher named Matt Higby who had a lot of the same experience that I did where he was asked, like, what would you give advice to people who are starting out in, in, in entertainment? And he said, sit down and enjoy your food. Like, we're in such a rush to get to the main stage. We're in such a rush to get to the end that we're not living in the moment and, like, living that experience. And that's what's going to get your art to the level that it needs to be. Um, it takes time to craft your art. It takes time to craft your healing, I think. Um, because you have to learn what, you have to learn what you're gonna heal, you have to learn how to do it, and you have to learn how to perfect it, and that takes time. And it really made me take a step back and be like, yeah, that, that's true. What am I rushing for? Um, and he goes on saying, like, you need to do other things and open yourself up to other people to live through more experiences, and also you eventually need people to come to your show. Because if you're only friends with improvisers, they're not going to come to your show unless they're in it. And I was, and I was like, true. So for me, just Reese, just when um, when I learned that the theme was Castaway, I was like, yeah, I have to. I was just like, yeah, I had to cast away the way I was thinking because I need to like fix myself for a minute and like take a break. And I think everyone deserves that um, to slow their hustle and know that it's okay. Because I feel like a lot of times we're told, like, oh, if you're not doing, like, the gig, you somehow fucked up. But you didn't. And even if you did, who cares? <laughs> you know? That's all I got. Thank you. Thank you so much. That helped me think through some stuff. This is another another piece for me, but I've, I've been thinking about the folly of being goal-oriented, and I think that's a little bit what Jesus has been talking to is like if you only see the end point and you think well it's an a to b it's not though because everything in between a to b is what gets you there when i was young and dumb i'm like oh i want to be a rock star because i saw elton john a real rock star on stage and i'm like that's my b and i'm a so a to b but that was dumb like i didn't like i was attracted to the adoration of rock and roll but what i really just wanted was an outlet to play music and do this and about seven years ago, Kevin Reeder gave me that, and this is as much of a rock star as I need to feel like. So, uh, you know, you know, yeah. Although I would totally like play rhythm guitar in Elton's band on his farewell tour if he wants. That would be tight. So, coming next to the stage, this gentleman, uh, a true published uh, published author, uh, American author. In fact, you are American, right? There we go. Um, written written a number of of modules for role-playing games which is pretty fantastic including stuff like dragon age and munchkin he runs a charity DD tournament every year at uh the co-prosperity sphere in bridgeport which is so cool uh and also he is a great dude that i love working with please welcome mr will heinmarch
So I'm changing their names. Uh, I'm going to call them Rick and Rob. Rick was my brother's bully, a few years older than me, and my bully. And my bully was older than me. So I'm going to go with Rob. Rob's a name and a verb. (laughs) So let's say my bully was Rob. Uh, They were the sons of a marshal or a prison warden or something. They were big white guys. Not football big, but round and tall with hands like hams. Uh, In my head, eighth grade Rob was already balding. His high forehead made him look grown up, grizzled and mean like a biker who'd seen some shit. And Rob used to yell at me. He'd push me around. He knocked me down. He made me cry. And one time on a class picture day, he and his crew threw tennis balls at me in the parking lot, which would be no big deal except that I slipped on one of them and, uh, in my dress shoes, went face first into the blonde bricks of the school wall and knocked a bunch of my teeth out of whack and sideways and stuff. And that was a bloody mess. And nobody came over to help because I was kind of the outcast in elementary school, which is somebody's got to be. And I was a nerd who drew dragons in his notebook, sketched out Starfleet ships on my math assignment, and nobody was coming over to help. And if they had, I would have scared them off because I was a moody, spastic, molten kid. What would be in it for someone to stand up for me? That was just the way things were. And another time, while we were in our middle school library for, I don't know, like English or biology or something, doing research, he stood over me while I sat at a table in the library. And he said the things that he used to have to say to make me cry. Fat, spaz, loser, the greatest hits. So without thinking, without getting out of my chair, I hit him. I don't know what I was thinking. I know I hit him. Well, I mean, I struck him. I slapped him, open-handed across the face. (laughs) And immediately after, the very next thing, I almost fainted. I looked at the shock on his insulted face. And I foresaw a great beating. He grabbed me and put me into the window blinds and held me there, pushing hard like he might force me through the glass, through the air, into the yard two stories down, into a grave formed by my collision with the earth. The blinds bent and broke and made the sounds that blinds make, and my feeble body couldn't push Rob back, but the librarian's voice got him to let me go straight away. And she sent us away. She sent us down to the principal's office, he and I, together. And by the time we got there, Rob had grown mutton chops. He was getting older every minute. He, had a, he, got, he got a tattoo of a dagger on his neck. And a bunch of his teeth are metal now by the time we get down there. Sometimes we need to stand up to bullies, the principal said. Something like that. The principal was a narrow guy with tall salt and pepper hair, big glasses. And he had the kind of mustache that back then meant you were either a highway patrol officer or a Chicagoan. (laughs) Without knowing anything about him except his demeanor, I concluded that he was a boring man. The kind of man who goes home at the end of a long day at the middle school enjoys quietly sitting still in a chair with no armrests. (laughs) Sometimes we need to stand up for ourselves, is what I think he said. I don't really know anything about my middle school principal. I, I, I mean, I think about the dynamic we must have had, right? I've heard of him because he's the baronet of our barony. He's heard of me because I was a weak student who tested well, because I was in counseling, I was a risk for self-harm, because I appeared in his paperwork. And I'd seen him. He presided over us because he was the principal. And I remembered how to spell his job title because a teacher taught us that a school's principal ends in pal. 
because your principal should be a helpful friend. But only one of us has a file on the other one in his office. You know what I mean? That doesn't seem friendly to me. So when he said what he said, it occurred to me that maybe I had been wrong all that time. Maybe I wasn't alone all that time. Some hope inside of me started to find its feet. Sometimes, he said, we need to stand up to bullies for ourselves. But I don't think this was one of those times, he said. As I remember it, Rob smiled, lit a cigarette, and nodded. (laughs) It wasn't heartbreaking, really. It was sort of affirming. Honestly, nobody was coming to help me. I was right. And the hope inside of me laid back down on the floor in the cool sand made from ground-down shards of my long-ago broken heart. And the principal decreed that we were to be cast away together to a Saturday of detention. I would be put again into a library with Rob, who by then carried a meat cleaver in a shoulder holster. <laughs> I would be stranded on a deserted island without friends, pitted against a rabid wild boar and its grudge and its tusks, and its dad was a cop, and I had just read Lord of the Flies. <laughs> Except, nope, Rob didn't show, because of course he didn't. Things like detention didn't stick to him. So I spent detention alone on a deserted Saturday, making notes in my spiral bound for some Dungeons and Dragons adventures, listening to the surf on the sandy shore, and glad for once to be alone. Thank you. was here right now, you guys. He's probably ascending into like some hybrid metal dragon at this point. It's real scary. We have one more storyteller. This is awesome. So this gentleman has been around since the beginning of the show. I think he's actually like on our first or second episode. A former member of the Nerdalogs. He is back working with us for a show we're putting up at C2E2 next week called Attend the Tale of Danny Tanner, a full house musical, which imagines Danny Tanner as a person who goes out and murders a drunk driver once a year to avenge his dead wife, which is probably canon. That's probably true. Um, it's going up at 4.45 at C2E2 on the Cards Against Humanity stage. So if you leave Tom Hanks Day early, you can come, but you should definitely go to Tom Hanks Day. Anyway, that's neither here nor there. Please welcome our Danny Tanner and our director, Mr. Andrew Bentley. Hello, I'm Andrew Bentley. Robinson Crusoe, perhaps history's most well-known castaway in the centuries before Tom Hanks washed ashore in our cinemas and slapped his bloody handprint on the volleyball of our collective minds, is the star of an eponymous tale popularly considered to be the first English novel. As the most widely read and distributed work of its time, it occupies a position of unique influence in the development of Western society. As an evangelist of what Max Weber, the German sociologist, would term almost 200 years later, the Protestant work ethic. James Joyce considered Crusoe to be the quintessential symbol of the British Empire, one that generations of red-coated soldiers and mariners carried with them as they forged a dominion that would, at its height, encompass one full quarter of all the people in the world, binding and molding them with an unsolicited paternalism that would have done old Robinson proud. After all, when Crusoe first encounters the indigenous man he will helpfully name Friday, the native lies prostrate and places Robinson's foot atop his head to convey his willing and eternal servitude. The novel and its inseparable doctrine trickle down through the decades to permeate huge swaths of Western social, ethical, and economic theory, 
The prosperity gospel, the sin of idleness, and other dangerous myths that now underpin the cruel form of predatory capitalism, which defines and bedevils our American identity, come to us, while not originally, nonetheless in substantial part through the pages of Robinson Crusoe, and are not met with significant refutation in popular literature until Mark Twain. Huckleberry Finn devotes much of its uh, page count to mocking the Protestant work ethic and the preordained hierarchy of intertwined wealth, race, and morality which define it, and its unprecedented influence in doing so placed the work in serious competition for the title of greatest American novel. This duality is one which I was particularly interested in eight years ago when I first moved to Chicago, and everything I've said up until now is a mercifully briefer and more sober distillation of the wild, grandstanding diatribe to which I was subjecting two strangers at a house party one warm September (laughs) before Eric Siegel swung low like a sweet chariot and pulled me away to get high. A a risky gamble, uh, equally likely to render me completely silent or to evoke a sort of room-clearing conversational dubstep, uh, but which either way would allow my two unfortunate victims to escape. (laughs) One time or another, we've all been that guy at the party. For the couple subjected to my bizarre literary screed, uh, that was no doubt a strange and alienating evening. For me, it was just another blurry, quixotic jab at leveraging my BA in sociology against some sort of vague dividend, as if, were I sufficiently convincing, one of them might be moved to offer me a job in the field of drunken stridency, perhaps something in talk radio. It only seems fair to talk about the worst I've ever made a party for someone else, which was either the one Halloween in college where I destroyed a party at JMU because I accidentally chucked a jack-o'-lantern at a police car then hid in the bathroom for an hour, or the night I just talked about, before I tell you about the worst party I've ever been to, which was three months later in Brooklyn. From the start, it was a mistake. Four of us took an $80 cab from Astoria to Bushwick because, by pure chance, we were all visiting on the birthday of mutual acquaintance named Michelle. Uh, None of us knew Michelle that well. I knew her through some old elementary school friends whom, six years after the party, she would defraud the tune of $5,000 before fleeing across the country. We certainly didn't know any of her New York friends, with whom we discovered she cohabitated in an old repurposed public tenement, the front walk of which was split by a four-foot ravine cunningly bridged by the door to their house. The door to the house had been replaced by a large, equal-sized piece of plywood, a functionalist mystery that implied either a rational response to a baffling sequence of events or a Dadaist contempt for traditional aesthetics meant to ferret out straight away who the squares and interlopers were. (laughs) Spoilers, they were us. The first person we met was Michelle's boyfriend, who trailed after her into the yard when she ran out to greet us. Uh, When I made the mistake of asking what exactly had happened here vis-a-vis the door, he sneered at me, laughed, responded with a non-sequitur, cool shoes, and turned back into the house slowly enough that we could all get a good look at his rolling eyes. He wore that sneer the rest of the night, no matter the conversation, drifting from room to room, looking very much like Martin Screlly at a free clinic. (laughs) He managed to maintain it while he was making out with Michelle in the kitchen, and even ten minutes after that, when he physically threw her to the floor to steal her bottle of whiskey. Everyone laughed the whole time, like it was a big inside joke. They carried on with their conversations while he carried the bottle wordlessly out of the room, and while we helped Michelle to her feet. Perhaps it was an inside joke, one that our shoes were too cool for us to get. The entire kitchen had a horrifying theme of aggressive sexuality. 
Early on, three of us were having a conversation with a very nice young woman. Uh, there was no flirt flirting. If anything, we were grateful for a shelter from the general air of hostility. Nonetheless, when he spied what was happening, her boyfriend approached wordlessly, picked her up around the waist, and carried her away, mid-sentence. A third, entirely separate guy suddenly began demonstrating wrestling moves on a girlfriend half his size. Over and over, he picked her up and hurled her around the kitchen, slamming her into the linoleum while she squirmed and giggled. So uniform was the, the pageant of domestic violence, so remarkably unremarked that we began to feel altogether gaslit, as if by not bringing our own lady flails to bandy about the room, we had committed an unspeakable breach of guestly courtesy. <laughs> we fled the kitchen, fools that we were, and became separated. I ended up in a disused bathroom, creeping towards the door while an enormous man with literal acid scars on his face described to me in great detail the pornography he was planning on filming the next day. <laughs> With who, I asked. <laughs> With her, he said, and pointed behind me, where I discovered a tiny apple-cheeked blonde so silent I had completely failed to notice her. I excused myself under the pretense of looking for the real bathroom and discovered my friend Brandon literally fleeing a diminutive shutterbug who was trundling after him, snapping pictures, explaining in a common, uninterrupted monologue the intricate workings of his camera. I could go on, but I don't think I could ever quite convey the nature of the evening without help from David Lynch. It was like I died in the middle of my Huck Finn speech three months earlier, and my soul had been dispatched in karmic retribution to some Stygian plane wholly peopled by my ilk. The final straw was when the, quote, DJ, who had not, in fact, jockeyed a single disc in the two hours we were there, announced he was pouring shots for everyone. When we stepped up to get one, he took one look at us and saw whatever same alien aura had surrounded us the whole evening, marking us as the enemy. He shook his head and closed the bottle. We left. We didn't really know where we were or where we were going, but the party's immune system had thoroughly rejected us. Bushwick was having none of us. We said goodbye to Michelle and happy birthday, and she told us to stay. We told her we had to go. Yeah, said her boyfriend, who had appeared in the doorway behind us. I think that's probably for the best. Then he pulled his pants down and peed in the empty whiskey bottle. As we left the house in Brooklyn that night... In one of the most densely populated cities in the world, we noticed that there were no other lights anywhere on the street. The whole world seemed abandoned, and we were completely alone as we stood in some stunned silence waiting for a taxi. Finally, one arrived, and once we were inside, the spell was broken. Finally, we could find the words to articulate what had just transpired. For most of us, our 20s are a relentless series of voyages into the distant, dragon-strewn peripheries of our personal atlases. As a vitally awkward individual, I have many times found myself shipwrecked on the insidious reefs of strange waters, clinging to whatever jetsam is at hand and hoping it will carry me to safety. But after that night, no other bad party could ever quite touch me. I'd seen the simple truth. When life tosses you up on unknown shores, sometimes you're Crusoe, and sometimes you're Friday. But more often than not, we're all just Tom Hanks, or a humble systems engineer named Chuck Noland, and all we can do is hold tight to Wilson and wait for that ship. Thank you. This guy, the song I'm about to play, almost no one even talks about the band he was kicked out of because they're so inconsequential to his story. Surely one of the greatest American voices. He was in a band called the Wink Westerners in the 50s, and they said, hey, get out. And he said, fine. I sing like an operatic angel and I don't need you. And he came to kind of define a generation of music. He is Mr. Roy Orbison. And uh, here is a song that he is very famous for. One, two, three, four. 
This has been a Nerdalogs production. If you'd like to help make more things like this, please visit patreon.com slash nerdalogs to donate today. And go to www.nerdalogs.com for more cool stuff. Thanks for being awesome. Thank you all. Thank you all. I am Grabbot23548X.